Hello, and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season five, episode one, our first episode on Netflix, and today we are going to be going back to 2006 and talking about Casino Royale. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy, Watkins. Matthew Watkins. <laughs> uh, hey, everybody. Good to see you, Zach. Yeah, good to see you. Well, we don't have cameras on. Do yeah, you have your true. camera on? No, no, I don't have my camera on. <laughs> uh, that's no, okay, I though. See you. Um, how are you doing? I am doing well. I am, yeah, I'm stoked to start the new season. We've been having a bit of time off. You've been really busy. You're back in school and preparing for a pretty big event, Magic the Gathering event on your end. Yeah, so. by by the time this airs, people will know what the results were for that and all of that. But I have been putting in like forty to sixty hours a week of of uh, practicing Magic: The Gathering in the past uh, like three four weeks. So we we kind of took a little break so that I could have time to <laughs> get my life uh, settled and in order. But once this tournament is over, it should be easy a lot easier for us to get back on uh, schedule. Yeah, so we're we're squeezing Casino Royale in here, and then we'll we'll be able to get going after after you have the tournament. But I'm pretty stoked for this season. I I guess this happens at the beginning of each season where I look at the lineup of movies and I'm just like, oh man, it they're kind of all bangers. And I guess that's what happens when you're you only get to pick eight movies, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was especially difficult for us for this season because Netflix has such a deep, such a deep, uh, I forget the word for it, but just so roster many catalog. deep roster, deep catalog of films. There are so many good films and uh, our short lists were quite long. <laughs> and so it, it took us a little while to, to pare it down and narrow it down to what we wanted to cover. And there's a lot of things that I would love to talk about that just didn't make the list for us. Yeah, that's yeah. what future seasons are for, or that's bonus right. episodes, or what have you. So let's go ahead and dive in here for Casino Royale. What's your history with this, and what what's your history with the Bond franchise overall? So my history with this film is that I saw it on opening night, and <laughs> cool. Yeah, so I I saw it when it first came out, and I went to, I can't remember if I went to a midnight showing or not, so I might have done that, but I saw it in the theater on either the midnight showing beforehand or the day of release. And I saw this film a few times afterwards, I think three times, two or three times, something like that, and then have not seen it since 2007. Mm, Okay. Yeah, and so the... The Daniel Craig Bond franchise I kind of fell off of after Quantum of Solace, and uh, I've heard the other ones after that were much better, and so I've wanted to get back on, but never really uh, put in the energy to do it. So that's my history with this film. But my history with the Bond franchise is pretty spotty. I've never been like a huge James Bond fan. I have not watched very many of the old James Bond films. Um, I have seen... One of the, one of the Sean Connery films, and I can't remember even which one. Uh, and I saw it <laughs> just like on TV because my dad had it on. And then one of the, what's his name, uh, 
Richard Moore? Is it Richard Moore? Roger Moore? I can't remember. Roger Moore. Yeah. Roger Moore. Yeah. So I've seen one of those films as well. Uh, and both of these were just like they were on and my dad was watching them. And I don't think I saw the whole thing of either of them. Just uh, bits and pieces of it. I did see Goldeneye. But that was right around the time when the GoldenEye video game came out, and I played mm-hmm. a lot of the GoldenEye video game. So my James Bond knowledge basically comes down to this film, Casino Royale, and playing the GoldenEye video game. And that's that's about, and everything else is just what I picked up by osmosis from popular culture, just people talking about James Bond. Yeah, and certainly James Bond is... One of the franchises, one of the franchises that if you are in a family or have been in a family or been in a household that is content just to sort of turn the TV on there, it seems like especially around the holidays, there's always a channel that's just doing a James Bond marathon. And so if you wanted to, you can just sort of check in. And I, I don't think they, we talked on the Mission Impossible episode about how they design the plot of the movie around the set pieces that that they want to fit in. I, I don't think the James Bond movies go quite that far, but a lot of times the, the plot is not necessarily all that important. You can sort of jump in and jump out, and you're always going to know where you're, be able to get your bearings in the movie. For sure, yeah. it's a I saw a really interesting uh, film criticism article that was talking about James Bond and that and that phenomenon with it. And they described James Bond as being more like a superhero film than like a spy film. Sure. And so I think that that matches up. It, these, they felt, these other ones feel like the Batman um, or Superman films that I remember watching growing up. They, they just feel very much in the same vein. Yeah. I think the big difference is like the the stunts tend to be a little feel a little more realistic and the james bond franchise sort of moves in and out of how much practical effects they use and don't use but yeah tends to tends to be an emphasis on a lot more practical which we also saw with mission impossible right yeah so yeah my history with the james bond films james bond movies were it's probably one of the few places where i'm a lot more experienced than you are in terms of these movies they were we had a couple different box sets like when we got a dvd player it was one of the first box sets that we got that i got for my parents or my mom got for my dad or my dad got for my mom so there were a good 11 or 12 james bond movies that we owned and watched a couple times and then when i was I don't know. I I should have asked my dad. I probably was eight or nine. It was before high school. And like one of my birthday parties, I had a couple friends over and we did like a James Bond movie marathon. And so we had fun. It was fun. And, you know, we were young and we didn't really know anything. I think it was before high school. Maybe it was high school. I should have asked Evan. I'm I'm sure he'll let us know. Because now I'm like, I think Evan was there. But anyway, so we did like Thunderball and maybe we did Octopussy as well. I, I honestly don't remember remember which ones we did. So I had quite a bit of experience with the James Bond franchise. 
And then I saw Casino Royale in college. So this was 2006. This was my sophomore year of college. And I was trying to ask around some of my college buddies to see if they remembered like when we saw it or how how close to opening we saw it. No one could really remember. But I know I saw it in college. I know some of the friends that I that I saw it with. And that and then before Quantum of Solace came out, this was I guess it's kind of funny this is starting our Netflix season because this is around the first time that I signed up for a Netflix account back when yeah. there were discs and watched through all of the movies leading up to Quantum of Solace. So, and there were in order. So starting with Dr. No in 1962 and then I oh, went wow. all the way through. <laughs> and there were a couple I had not seen at that point, but now I've seen all of them. Although I have not gone, I have not gone back and rewatched a James Bond film since then. So this is my first time watching Casino Royale since whatever that whatever year that would have been, two thousand seven or two thousand eight, and my ha- haven't watched any of the ones preceding that since since that year either. And I've of course seen all of the ones the four later Daniel Craig movies as they've come out in theaters. And so yeah, it's a, it's a fun franchise that I'm pretty pretty fond of and I'm sure as we'll talk about it has its issues. It's a hard one, especially the older movies, a hard one to really recommend to someone if they haven't already seen them or don't really have a predilection to wanting to watch them. I mean, there's a lot of uh, misogynistic history wrapped up in the franchise and in the character of James Bond, but it's something that I love despite that, partly from nostalgia and partly, I mean, nostalgia will help you overlook a lot of those things, right? It'll (laughs) get you over that hump. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's a, it's the Bond films are so like inextricably connected to the history of cinema that you know, yes, there's a lot of problems with the Bond series over a long period of time, and also I think a lot of those are problems with film over a long period of time. Uh, sure, I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. And mm-hmm. so it's it's a tricky one because it's important to acknowledge the problems that it has. Uh, while also just being inescapable as far as, you know, looking at uh, at the way film is developed and seeing trends over time and the way the story has changed and morphed. So I find those really interesting. It's re- they're, they're films that are really interesting as cultural artifacts while also being, except for the problematic parts, I think that it, what I've seen of Bond films, they've been generally at least watchable and, like, fun and also being interesting historical artifacts at the same time. So that's that's an kind of interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I was going back through and I was, you know, we had had, <laughs> I posted in the Best of the Rest Discord, we had had the guy, we Chris Logan, who we'd had on before, I went back and I was looking at the lowest ranked Bond movies by Rotten Tomatoes and just sort of ribbing them and being like oh you could do a full james bond month and the four (laughs) bottom movies i was like oh i kind of love all these movies and i don't know how i'd feel watching them now but it's just everyone is going to be an easy watch you know it's yeah going to get you to your set pieces and the set pieces are generally going to be fun and it's going to have some corny one-liners and 
you'll get in and you'll get out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about why we chose this movie. I mean, this is a blockbuster blockbuster movie. And as we've said before, we really like to start our seasons and end our seasons with a bang. Sort of the middle of the season, we can sort of meander around, pick some of the older movies or sort of knock something off of our to be watched list. But certainly we've noticed we get more downloads, get a little more engagement with movies that people tend to have seen. And so we want to always make sure we start and end the season with those. So that certainly helps here. And then also, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I guess while you're talking, I'll look up. I think it's in my top 30 on my flick chart, so I'll I'll double check. And I we also thought it would be nice. We covered North by Northwest in season... What season was that? Season two? Season two, I think, yeah. Yeah, and North by Northwest, we talked about it for that episode that it's sort of like the prototype for a James Bond movie. It's the first James Bond movie, unofficially the first James Bond movie, even though it has zero affiliation with yep. with James Bond. And so thought it would be fun to start with the sort of soft reboot here. For sure. And then I also thought this one was really interesting because of the way it kind of reshaped the Bond franchise so much and really represents the time period that it came out and the the kind of movements within film that were going on. I think this film is incredibly representative, representative of that time period. It's a great time capsule film. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so it's it was Casino Royale was in my top 30, but then now it's number 31 because everything everywhere all at once came out this year and so a lot came of movies and got it down. moved <laughs> yeah a lot of movies got bumped down a peg after after i saw that one so that makes sense. just outside the top 30 for sure for sure i'm, I'm not sure where i have it um I, I it's somewhere in my top like 250 which is uh, roughly you know roughly comparable to your top uh to my top, top 40 <laughs> top 40 yeah yeah so let's talk a little bit about the... Did you have anything else you wanted to say about why we chose this? Or should nope. we... We can um, move on. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about 2006. So um, we have a bunch of events pulled from 2006 that we'll go through here. But first, I did want to give a quick rundown of the James Bond franchise. So this is based on a series of novels by Ian Fleming and it took quite a while as I understand it for them to finally get the rights or for people to finally get the rights to these films and then finally in 1962 was the first James Bond movie that was I think as most of us know our first Sean Connery film and the so Sean Connery would do five films as James Bond and bring himself into prominence while also bringing the franchise into prominence so that was five films between 62 and 67 and those films are actually kind of interesting particularly those first three I believe they really kind of follow they're not really standalone movies like they kind of follow the same plot thread and go go all the way through and then sean connery left and george lazenby came in for on her majesty's secret service in 1969 for one movie and they 
were trying to lock him up for a, a seven picture deal and I I kind of always thought they got rid of him because he wasn't all that well received but when researching I was surprised to find out that the reason he's not in anymore is because his agent told him that the secret agent would be quote archaic in the liberated 1970s <laughs> and so as a result he oh, left the series and boy is it hard to imagine a worse financial decision <laughs> yeah that's terrible oh wow uh that agent you... did not have a good pulse on uh on what was going to be popular no definitely not apologies for them woo, woo. um <laughs> <laughs> sort of sort of like a spy setting here in new jersey <laughs> Right, yeah. So if you go to the like the Wikipedia page and look at how much money all of the various James Bond actors make, it kind of increases exponentially after each of their films as the franchise becomes more reliant on them. And if you go through and watch the movies, you know it's like the it can it can be a little it has its down moment for as easy to watch as all of them are. It has its down moments. And so I think the franchise just, they like being able to bank on knowing who their James Bond is and knowing that it's going to be marketable and knowing that they're just going to be able to get through the movie with, with the right tone. So really lost out on a lot of money there. And so Sean Connery came back in 1971 for one more film. And that was diamonds are forever while they sort of, got their poop in a group, and then we move on to Roger Moore, who did five films between 1973 and 1985. His first one was Live and Let Die, which certainly a big deal because they got the one and only Paul McCartney to do the, the theme song to it. Probably you're familiar with that song, even if you've never seen the movie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the, the Roger Moore film that I've seen. Oh, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. And then Timothy Dalton shows up for two movies, The Living Daylights and License to Kill. For the life of me, I do not remember these movies at all. I think License to Kill we did have in that box set. And then The Living Daylights, I think I only saw when I was doing that watch through leading up to Quantum of Solace. So he did those two movies, 87 and 89. And then Pierce Brosnan did GoldenEye in 95 and then did three other films. And GoldenEye is largely considered to be one of the best in the franchise. It's one of the most beloved. And the other three are largely disdained or considered pretty mediocre uh, so it was it was a big deal to to come into the franchise. Like they were needing to reinvigorate this franchise. They were needing to find some sort of new angle, some sort of way to make it feel fresh and get away from the disappointments that had been the the end of the Pierce Brosnan era. Yeah. It was also a time where movies and films, especially spy movies and films, were changing a lot right at that time mm-hmm. period. So they wanted to freshen up freshen up the film a whole bunch. And then they had rights to Casino Royale that hadn't been had before. And that film was a, a, satir- a satirical take on the character of James Bond. So there's a, you know, decide to change some, some things up. Uh, and they also changed ownership of the rights 
to to uh, James Bond for the films at the, at that time. So it went to their kids, right? So at the time period, I I didn't look up the whole history of the ownership, but I do know that the rights for the films were traded from Sony to Eon in exchange, mm. basically straight across for the Spider-Man franchise. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, so so they just made a straight-up uh, trade across. At the time, that probably seemed really smart. They they swapped them in 1999. And so the there was... Spider-Man had been in, like, cartoons and stuff, but had never been a big uh, a big budget film franchise. Uh, I did look up how much those two franchises have made since then. Um, mm-hmm. And the Bond franchise has made $2.1 billion since they, since they swapped the rights. So right, take that. For yeah, sure. that's great. Uh, the Spider-Man franchise has made eight billion dollars for Sony Oof. Uh, since that time period, but that's just from the films. And trying to get an estimate of how many Playstations have been sold on the back of uh, of the Spider-Man video games is really hard to figure out. Uh, right. But it's, I mean, the games themselves have made somewhere around like three to four billion dollars. And then how many PlayStation units they've moved. I, I don't know, but I'm guessing the Spider-Man franchise for Sony has made them somewhere in the rent realm of 16 to $20 billion since 1999. Well, are you factoring in N64 sales for, uh, for uh, James Bond? Uh, I did not factor in N64 mm. sales, but that's because uh, I was factoring in after the deal got, uh, after the swap. And that happened oh, before right, the swap. Oh, right, of course. Yeah. Well, there is a an upcoming GoldenEye re-release for the Switch plan, so I'm I'm sure that'll that'll probably close the margin quite a bit. I imagine. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, the I did want to before we talk about the goings on of 2006. I did want to mention we had talked about so the first Mission Impossible is a decade before this, and then. I don't remember when the second one came out, but the third one came out in May of this year, May of mm-hmm. 2006. So Mission Impossible really creeping up on on the James Bond franchise. But then, of course, and it's hard to, if you've seen the movies, it's hard to ignore sort of their tonal influence on this movie. The Bourne movies came, the first one came out in 2002, and then the second one came out in 2004. Yes. And one of the things that was so striking to me when I saw this for the first time in theaters was you see James Bond, you see Daniel Craig's James Bond really get hurt and really struggle. And some of that has to do with the reboot and that you're getting to see him like learn the ropes. But I'm pretty sure that is something that they took directly from the those Bourne movies. You, yeah, it seemed you like it sounded like punches. it at the time period too. Um, I was watching all those Bourne movies, the Mission Impossible movies, so I was following that news pretty closely when I went to see Casino Royale, and that's what the talk was mm-hmm. was the 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 tonal 
comparisons between those things. Uh, there's some cine- cinematography similarities, but also some striking differences uh, between Casino Royale and the Bond films and Mission Impossible. So they all have, three have their own their own tones and their own cinematography, but they clearly are leaning on each other for things and the way they designed the action. There's a lot of similarity across them. Mission Impossible 3 was kind of viewed as a soft reboot as well. And so mm-hmm. you, it was kind of a real change in just... You also had... Oh, 24 was around that time period as well. Um, That's right. Yeah, I didn't yeah. didn't put that down. I think that was... Yeah, I think that was a little earlier. Was it 2003? It sounds right to me, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I forgot television shows exist. <laughs> and so, I don't know. It's just interesting. 2001 was... Uh, when 24 debuted that makes sense so it's interesting to see the the way these things all interacted with each other and and like i said casino royale is very representative of the way that films were changing at the time period yeah so what do we have the for 2006 specifically that we wanted to talk about so one thing that we wanted to mention which is this one was wild and uh, just kind of rocked me was in march 21st of 2006 was the launch Mm -hmm. of a little internet website called Twitter. uh, The Little Bird website. Mm -hmm. It's wild to think about, isn't it? Yeah, I can't remember when I joined Twitter, but it was, I think, 2008, 2007, somewhere around in that time. Uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's just, woo! That's uh, had some... uh, It's definitely delineates a different time period than what would come afterwards. Yeah, and that time obviously has evolved, but it is, like, of course, intellectually, I know there was a time before Twitter and that we lived in that world, but it was, I did have to, like, remind myself when I saw when I saw that on the on the Wikipedia. And I think we talked about this same sort of phenomenon. I think it was for hitch because i think youtube launched in 2005 so i think we right. talked about it for this sort of the same thing in in that episode yes yes we did and uh, i one of the things that i thought about afterwards is this film would also be very different i don't know they they probably could have told the same story and wouldn't have changed it that much but i think that the existence of Twitter would change the way you would perceive a lot of the events that happen in this film as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's it's fascinating, and it has had a dramatic and change on society. And I don't know. Watching Casino Royale, you is in some ways kind of like a time capsule of before social media really like got a hold the way that it would in the years following 2006, like up to 2009, more or less. Well, one of the nice things, and it's not super present in this movie because there aren't a ton of gadgets, but there are cell phones. And one of the nice things, if you watch through all the James Bond movies, is because they all have gadgets, you get to sort of see where the technology was and what was considered like the best technology for the time or what was just like a little bit ahead of where what they thought like the next best thing was or what the the best um that money could buy for that time would be and you can see all of that develop all through from 62 to now and at this time it was a a nokia phone that could send text messages so Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) well yeah yeah (laughs) It, it was 
yeah. <laughs> so exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, the next thing I had that I wanted to talk about is only because part of this movie takes place in Montenegro and they didn't do any filming there. And I assume it may have been a little different if they had. But on May 21st of 2006, the referendum for Montenegro to become its own country to get independence from Serbia and Montenegro was uh, put forth. And then what, just like two weeks after that on June, June 3rd, Montenegro declared their independence, which I thought was kind of cool. It wasn't something I was smart enough to know about when I saw this movie, but if you were involved in world politics, then probably would have been something that you would have thought about, or, you know, if you read the paper more than I did in college, because huge, the entire second act takes place in Montenegro in this movie. You know, I don't want to claim I was super uh, aware of everything going on in the world at the time period, but I did have a friend at the time period who was from Montenegro. He was a, a student who was attending college here in the States. And so I remember when this happened, when this story happened, because I was... I found out from him while we were, like, at a restaurant and getting some food. Mm. And so then when I went and saw this movie, I was like, oh, yeah. This, yeah, it's taking place in Montenegro. So uh, I did, that popped out to me, but only because of coincidence. Yeah, that's kind of cool. looks like you pulled a couple not-so-exciting things. What, what do you have? Yeah, so the things that I pulled out here, there's a couple of things that I wanted to to pull in because of the way they tie in with the themes of the film, uh, which is the Sabra City bombings in... Um, oh, I looked this up and I can't remember the country that it's in. It's uh, in a Middle Eastern country and I can't remember which one specifically. But they were bombings the, that killed 77 people and then there were 96 that were injured. And then there was also the Mumbai train bombings that happened uh, just 10 days after that in which 209 people were killed and 706 injured. I remember when these happened uh, and they uh, popped up on the news. Um, I remember the headlines for these and they were news stories for for a while. And it's also just part of the way things were at this time period in 2006 that's hard to communicate to people that weren't, you know, that weren't adults in the time period or at least teenagers after... Um, September 11th, 2001, there was just a very big change in the way that people talked about these kinds of events uh, and terrorism and things like that. And this film came out, you know, right, it was being worked on, developed, and then came out all through the middle of the Bush years. So it really informs the way that this film, which is a film that is about terrorism, is told and... We had covered Hitch from the from the Bush years beforehand, and uh, but this one feels so much more like a Bush era film to me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, you can really feel the heavy hand of the politics on the film, and so that that stood out to me as I was watching this, watching it this time, and having the benefit of sixteen years, and then going back and watching it and seeing the way that the politics of the time period kind of shaped the way I was thinking about this. 
these bombings in particular I stood out to me because of the way that the bombings are talked about in this in Casino Royale. They're they're using kind of impromptu explosive devices, uh, improvised in explosive devices and things within the film. There's a bomber that runs away, um, all of these kinds of things. And that ties in with these these events that happen as well. Yeah, it was in uh, Iraq. Yes. Yeah, Sober City, Iraq. Yeah, sort of the whole plot of the film revolves around bombings. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I at the time period... Because so many of the, I don't know that I would have picked out particularly those two things because there were so many events to tie it back to, it, but it would have been very much part of the zeitgeist and they were happening uh, regularly enough, uh, these kinds of events that it, it was on my mind when I watched the film. And I don't know that, you know, watching the film at the time period that you, you could have not had that on your mind. Yeah, it it made it feel present. It made it feel real. Yeah, it felt like it was taking place that year. <laughs> yeah. For sure. The other two things I wanted to mention, these are sort of just fun. <laughs> Certainly a lot more fun than mass casualty bombings. The October On October 9th of this year, Google purchased YouTube, which... Yeah, I was surprised it was this early. I didn't recall it being this early. And then only two days after this movie was released, so this movie came out November 17th, and then November 19th was when the Nintendo Wii was released. Wii! Wii! (laughs) Which kind of a fun Stream It crossover, because I think I talked about that release for our Mission Impossible episode during the bonus question. Oh yes, that's true. That's true. Which I thought was kind of kind of fun. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It's <laughs> that's is fascinating. Uh, th- I mean, this movie also has so much connection with video games and video game history too because of the intersection of GoldenEye and just a lot of the scenes in this film feel like they're <laughs> like out of a video game i don't know it's you you can see a strong connection with that stuff yeah 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 absolutely this because this would still be yeah we're still like three years away from the assassin's creed games coming out yes right but yeah well and uh, development for the assassin's creed games kind of starts around this time period they were working on the prince of persia game and then that turned into assassin's creed right, because of, of right course. issues and the assassin or the prince of persia game they were specifically trying to build around the parkour sequences which were popularized specifically in this film because of the performer uh, Sebastian Foucan who was in the film and he was becoming popular at the time period but this was like his big break and the big break for parkour and I remember this at the time period how quickly the sport became popular um, right around this time and because of this release and uh, I remember the video I can't remember if it was in the trailer I, I know there was a video of the parkour sequence released before the film came out that wasn't even in uh, a trailer, something like that, that 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 oh, I watched beforehand. And so part of the promotion that was tied in with with the development of parkour. I was trying to remember if I 
Yeah, I don't know if I really knew anything going in. I feel like I must have known that it would that they were going back to that they were sort of like doing a soft reboot and going back to before he was a double a double O. I definitely but, knew that, but I also didn't really know what that meant. So <laughs> Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean I knew that a double O meant, you know, the license to kill and all of that stuff, but it's not like I knew the whole story of everything. So that's one of the reasons why I went to watch this film, why I was excited to watch this film is that it was I felt like I was getting a good spot to onboard onto the series. Like, oh, this is the yeah. beginning of, of the James Bond story. Yeah, and I think that is true, although there are all well talk about it a little bit later but there's also plenty of easter eggs for people who (laughs) watched all of them yeah let's talk a little bit about the people who made this movie i think we can start by talking about daniel craig the james bond here one of the things and i do remember this happening but i had completely forgotten it until i looked it up that daniel craig was widely disparaged when the casting announcement was made and it is like so impossible to imagine now because he is so (laughs) iconic and so widely beloved and so synonymous with james bond now the enough so that he i believe he was originally only signed for a four picture deal and then they made sure that they could get him back for for a fifth one for no time to die so they could close the loop and his movies have just been so popular and he's been so good for the James Bond franchise but the James Bond franchise has also been extremely good for him I sort of was expecting when I went back through his filmography to find a bunch of stuff that I was like oh yeah this is where he got big from but and he was in Mystic River he was Uh, also in Our Friends in the North is where he kind of got his first big break um, yeah, which was more of a drama film, and that's that's the film where they kind of saw his performance, and that one and Tomb Raider, and mm. uh, he was like the guy, but he wasn't playing in Tomb Raider. He wasn't playing like the big star. He was, I can't remember that film very well, but this was definitely a the the big break for Daniel Craig. Yeah, it's I mean it's stuff, but it's he wasn't like a household name. I think no. there were a lot of people who when he was cast it was like, "Who? You cast who?" Mm-hmm. And um, I was one of he, those people. I didn't I didn't know who yeah. he was when when oh, they no. cast him. Oh no, certainly I didn't either. And I did want to read this uh, quote from Wikipedia cuz I thought it was so funny. It says Craig, unlike previous actors, was not considered by the protesters to fit the tall dark handsome and charismatic image of bond to which viewers had been accustomed many disparagingly called him james blonde yeah and yeah boy, uh, so there was just... weird stuff at the time okay so uh i i went through and did some research on this actually mm-hmm. um because i've talked about how before some of these films that we've watched have a lot of like a very robust history in the scholarly literature and you might not have expected uh, uh, Casino Royale to be one of them, but it is. It has tons and tons of articles in in the scholarly literature about this film, um, and a lot of them revolve around this this stuff with Daniel Craig being uh, being cast, and a lot of the the James Blonde stuff was specifically tying him in with this idea of gentlemen prefer font blondes. They were trying to feminize him. 
Um, yeah. And so the the view was of that he wasn't masculine enough to play the part. So it was very much like this uh, fight over gender boundaries. And then the way that they pushed back against it was like trying to push his masculinity with a, a bunch of different like promotional things that they did. There's this interview with him where he's talking about like before he did his first promotional stunt where he's like on the boat and uh, does the water where he came out and all of that stuff uh, and he was mm-hmm. worried about falling off of the boat like this is the interview with him beforehand because <laughs> he's like if I fall off the boat they're going to think that, I, that I'm not going to be able to be Bond and he was stressed about all of this stuff and it's just fascinating the way that the way that the culture was just so weird and just, I mean, I could see this happening now, though. So just to be clear. Um, but it would be so different now because Twitter exists now. Like, yeah. it all happened without Twitter. I mean, without Twitter being what it is now. Yeah, it, Twitter wasn't it wasn't Twitter in the same way. Without the internet really being what it is now. Exactly, know? yeah. I don't know. It's and fascinating. The other thing I wanted to say about him, and you can really see it in this movie is he's a classically trained actor. He was trained in theater school, and one of his first things was at the National Theater, where he was in Angels in America, and Mara and I saw him a couple years ago at New York Theater Workshop. He was Iago in in Othello, and yeah, he's got the chops, and it's one of those things for this movie, like because they have someone who has the chops and they have Judy Dench, like you get to do stuff that you didn't get to do in other James Bond films. Yeah, I, I don't want to slight the other performers, but there is, I can tell from the things, from the ones that I've watched, the quality of the performance is just a different level. And Daniel Craig since has become in... Knives Out, which came out not, yes. not a few years ago. It's one of my favorites, and his performance is very good in there. And coming up soon after this episode releases, it will probably be just like a couple months after this episode releases, will be Glass Onion, the sequel to Knives Out, in which Daniel Craig stars once again. Yeah. I think that brings us to someone who you wanted to talk about, which is Judy Dench. Judy Dench, yeah, for sure. Whew. Judy Dench, Dame Judy Dench. Um now, Judy Dench, I'm not as high up on the, uh, or as up to date on all the James Bond stuff, but she was cast in the James Bond franchise beforehand as M. That's correct, right? Uh, yeah, she was, I believe, I can't remember, I'll look it up. I don't think she was predated Pierce Brosnan, so I think she started in the Pierce Brosnan era. Yeah, I believe that is correct. And then she comes back on this film, which is... <laughs> Ironic in a way that she is uh, older as a performer, but she's playing the same character at the beginning of Vaughn's era, but in kind of a, a reboot. I don't know. It's it's interesting from a timeline perspective. Oh, they. I mean, they definitely like make the choice that they are not going to worry about any timeline stuff. Oh like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. All of the tech is modern. He has the same M that Pierce Brosnan had, even though we know that there were other M's, male M's in in the middle, and it, you're just not going to worry about it. Yeah, it's, it's a it's yeah. it's whatever. It's you honestly know, one of the smartest decisions they made. I I agree, and I was gonna uh, I was gonna mention this later, but this is a good time for it. Is 
the Bond franchise v- feels very similar to me uh, with the Doctor Who franchise in yeah. the way that the being able to recast the part has allowed them to make this franchise last for a long time and also not getting hung up too much on continuity issues and just letting things work themselves out. I think have generally been good for those franchises and also, it, you know, it's there's something about the British film experience that just is fine with, you know... Fine with the series going for 60 years and recasting uh, everyone in every role. So, yeah, it's, you know. it's great. Judy Dench is also just one of the great actresses. Uh, she is one of the great performers. And she got her start in 1957 on the theater, uh, in the theater, as Ophelia in Hamlet. Uh, and then she did a bunch of stage acting, including Henry V and Romeo and Juliet. So this is a Shakespearean classically trained actor as well. Uh, she's part of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, I have seen her in Macbeth, and her performance there was quite good as Lady Macbeth. Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of oh, like transformative. And then she also got a lot of acclaim in a stream at crossover. She was in uh, the stage version of Cabaret, one of these early uh, kind of iconic per, uh, oh, performances. I don't know if I knew that. Yeah, it is. It wasn't the... Is She didn't originate the role, but I think she was in the second big run of it. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but she did play Sally Bowles in the musical Cabaret, and she, she was very... She played it for a while and was very influential on the part. It, on Broadway or over in the West End? Uh, I believe that was in... Oh, where was... I, I believe that was in England, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I would, that's what I would have guessed. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. She's since gone on to have a long film career as well, and I don't know that I could even go through and talk about all the things Yeah, let's that, just list all of them. Let's just... Yeah. It, how many... It can't be more than 200. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a few. It's a handful. Um, I would go through and list all of them, but honestly, I, I can't find, like, the comprehensive list of this as I'm going through. She has so many. <laughs> um, it's not like on her Wikipedia page. It has its own separate page, and I can't... I couldn't even find the separate page because there's so many films that she's done. She's had a career since uh, since you know that very beginning in in the fifties. She's been going for seventy years and just continually turning in incredible performances, decade after decade after decade. And so I don't know. She's just an incredible, an incredible performer. She continues to be incredible. She's got some films that have come out recently that are even still. Uh, her performances are very good. I don't know. She's something else. Well, and she's become an uh, an Academy darling. Yes, as for sure. well. Like she's sort of anytime she has a role in a movie, it sort of doesn't matter what <laughs> what the role is or how big it is or what she has to do. You sort of always have to be on on the lookout for for an Oscar nomination. Yes. And sort of. Ha- I don't. I don't think you watched Belfast from last year, but I didn't. She's great in it. Like, there's there's no missteps. I can't say I would have given her an Oscar nomination for it, but it's Dame Judy, Judy Dench, so she got one. Yeah, it, I mean, it makes sense. And then, additionally, she's continued to have a, a great television career, and <laughs> she's continued to have a great theater career all through this entire time entire time period. She still has. Uh, she still has theater credits that, that she's got, including, like, she performed in as Titanium A Midsummer Night's Dream in 2010. And I don't know, it's just something else the, to have somebody performing at that high of a level for such a long period of time. Yeah. 
Uh, it's also just uh, casting someone in the role of M, someone who's supposed to come in and have a certain kind of gravitas. The, uh, I can't imagine a better person to choose than than Judy Dench. And at the time period, it was a big deal because she was cast as M and she was a woman. And so, you know, <coughs> Bond fans being what they were, were quite upset about that when that happened originally. But she just really owns the role and she's very good. Yeah, I because those ones were the first ones I saw, I didn't realize that that M was a man before that. I did I didn't either, yeah. Yeah. So, and I don't know, it, it's funny because uh, additionally Ian Fleming uh, gave the name M because it was like a joke to like feminize the character because it was named it, it was the it was a nickname tied to his mom, and so it was supposed to be like a guy that had like a mother kind of figure. And then, I don't know. So it's a lot of really interesting things, and she kind of owns the role in a way that, that I, don't, I don't know that the previous performers did in the same way. Yeah. Oh, and I do want to say, this maybe should go in advice or insight, but while we're talking about Judy Dench, I just learned for the first time maybe like two or three years ago that I, for my entire life, I thought that British people used mum as in like the British pronunciation or British spelling of mom as an honorific when they were talking to people. And it wasn't until I saw a tweet where someone was like, I think they had learned the same thing that I learned that it's just a very similar vowel for a lot of people in the UK when pronouncing mum for your mom and also pronouncing ma'am, M-A apostrophe A-M. And so for, yeah, my whole life until about three years ago, I thought they were just calling her mom. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Mm, So, yeah, if if you were also stupid like me, now (laughs) you cannot be. There you go. Um, I did briefly want to talk about Martin Campbell just because he's the director of this film. And I think it's so interesting and so weird. Like he doesn't have a very deep filmography and he does have a movie that came out this year. I don't have the name in front of me, but it didn't really get very good reviews. It has Liam Neeson in it and it's sort of a spy movie. But what he does have in his filmography, along with Legend of Zorro, I believe the year after GoldenEye, is he has two of what are widely considered to be the best James Bond movies of all time, uh, Casino Royale and then also GoldenEye. And I just think yeah. it's pretty wild to have those movies in your filmography and then not really have a, a ton else other than the the Legend of Zorro. And it... I well, spend... so so the Zorro franchise, he had the Mask of Zorro. Oh, the Mask of Zorro. Right Zorro. after GoldenEye, which was very critically well-received and is a very good film. He then had The Legend of Zorro, which was not critically well-received uh, Got it, got um, it. And then additionally, he had the Green Lantern film. And yeah. so that's where his career kind of drops off is is after the Green Lantern film. He doesn't do another film for six years after that. But uh, yeah, I'm just like... What, are Casino Royale and GoldenEye just accidents? I don't... And we'll talk about it for this movie. There is so much in this movie that is just so audacious and confident that I'm like... Well, I don't... I don't understand. I don't think you... I don't think you could call them accidents because The Mask of Zorro is similar in that way. And it's... it's, And not only that, but they're good in 
different ways, GoldenEye and Casino right, Royale. Yeah. Um, and additionally, had the film No Escape that came out before GoldenEye, which was also very well critically critically received. So, I don't know. It's a. I feel like it's just really hard to direct films. Um, yeah, making a movie is hard. And even <laughs> yeah. if you're a director that has a lot of talent and a lot of skill, you can still make a movie like Casino Royale and also make a movie like Green Lantern. And, you know, that's just the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense. I shouldn't be as, as incredulous as I am. But it is after the movie, after I finished watching it, I was like, I want to go watch some of the other stuff. But I For should sure. watch the, the Zorro one. Uh, yeah, you uh, should. It's a it's a good one. Who you had one other person you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, Phil Mayhew. Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it exactly. It's French, um, and he was the cinematographer for this film, and also he was the cinematographer on Goldeneye. So it's similar with this, and he's mm. worked frequently with Martin Campbell. So uh, they've worked together quite a bit, but he did not work with him on. Green Lantern, though, but he also worked with him on the Zorro films, so uh, Mask of Zorro, Legend of Zorro, Casino Royale, and Goldeneye. He also did the films Entrapment and Bicentennial Man. Uh, Entrapment very much feels like a James Bond film, including having Sean Connery as one of the main parts, <laughs> so it's uh, you can see kind of this style, but he also did the Smurfs movies later on, so I don't know. It's a he, he's got a style, but at the same time, he's got the ability to, like, move in different different areas. He also won a BAFTA for this film, Casino Royale, for Best Cinematography. And he's he's a really good cinematographer. Uh, all, of these, all of these films that I had mentioned have really, really good cinematography. And uh, what stuck out to me so much is how different the cinematography is between GoldenEye and Casino Royale and how much he kind mm-hmm. of reinvented that. And that is not an easy thing for a cinematographer to do. Like, it's not easy for a director, but it's particularly difficult for a cinematographer because it means not just changing, like, the way you want to look at and approach a film, but also changing, like, all of your equipment and the all of the people that are working on on all of that equipment that you're used to, that you have your guys, your crew that that runs things in a certain way, they also have to change the entire way that they're they're filming things. And the the difference is like those Goldeneye films and the previous the previous Bond films have the camera and it has it really stationary, and it kind of lets. Bond come on almost like a stage play and do a lot of the performances and the camera doesn't move very much. It has a lot of coverage to uh, to get all the different different scenes where this one, Casino Royale, the f- camera is very freed and so the camera moves around a lot in a, in a lot of different places. Uh, sometimes in the action scenes, it's moving very quickly along with the characters and sometimes in even the, the scenes in between characters. Specifically, I'm thinking of the scene in M's apartment where the camera is moving through the apartment with the characters, so you get a different feel of motion. Where normally that film, that scene would have been cast with like a camera staying more stationary. So that's a big change. The tone of the tones of the film, like the color that they're using for the film, is very different. The lighting is very different. So it's for me, this is a very like stunning feat of cinematography to see the way they are done differently by the same person. Yeah, and it should be mentioned, you mentioned the BAFTA award that he got for this, and it kind of broke the, 
broke the seal. I don't, this movie didn't get any Oscar attention, but no James Bond movies prior to this had gotten any Oscar attention other than for the categories of song. And then I think also probably sound or maybe visual effects, some of, some of those, but, and it missed Quantum of Solace because womp womp. But once you hit (laughs) Skyfall, then the James Bond movies start to be Oscar contenders and Skyfall either was nominated for cinematography or maybe it even it even won and that wasn't that wasn't Phil Mayhew it was Roger Deakins I think yeah the, I mean uh, Sam Mendes's cinematographer yeah I, well, well among others yeah it's more like um, uh, Sam Mendes's uh, Roger Deakins occasional directing partner Sam, uh, right yeah Roger yeah. Deakins <laughs> is just the best cinematographer probably. Probably in history, so it, it makes sense that he's nominated for awards because he's just so good, and everything that he does is incredible. But it, his bringing on bringing Roger Deakins on is tied directly to Phil Mayhew and his work in this in this film. Roger Deakins took the job because of the work that 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 Phil Mayhew did and how well regarded it was on Casino Casino Royale. Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't know. It's a shout out to shout out to him. It is incredible work. Oh, he also did another film that I love. It's called The Saint. I don't know if you've ever seen The Saint. No, I um, it's very like it's a spy movie that's kind of in this in this vein. But it is, I think of it as very much a prototype for the for the way that the spy movies kind of changed with the Mission Impossible and and Born era. It had Val Kilmer in it, and it just approached the story in a different way from a much more like grounded, kind of realistic way that also used a lot of movement in the camera. And it released a little bit after Goldeneye, so... Yeah, 97. Yeah, so, so it's very much like... You can see that transition period with that film, um, and with Mission Impossible just barely before, and then the influence on the on the Bourne films, and so a lot of like what you can credit the modern spy film to is uh, Phil Mayhew and his 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 style, his his effect on the on the genre. Yeah, should we move into advice for first time viewers here? For sure. Yeah. So I think for a lot of people, if it's not something that's going to bother you. You're going to be fine jumping in here if this is your first James Bond film. However, if you're someone who's uh, has whatever brain dysfunction I have and you want to be able to get your bearings for what came before this without having to watch whatever it is, 21 movies, I thought I could give just sort of three movies that I think will give give people a good sense of where where the franchise was before this. So I think starting with Dr. No makes a lot of sense, starting with the first one and um, Sean Connery's first movie. I think as Live and Let Die then is also a great one to go to, get Roger Moore's first one, and then do Goldeneye and see Pierce Brosnan's first movie. I think if you see those three, then you'll sort of, get a good sense of three three of the different eras and 
be well set up to be able to watch this movie with a good understanding of what came before. And what do you know? Those were the three that I'd seen before watching Casino Royale. I saw, uh, I saw the. I, I mean, not for every actor, but out of the four like biggest ones, I've seen all their first movies. Not, not any of the ones that followed. So, there you go. I mean, and there are plenty of other fun ones. Like I, I love Thunderball. I love Goldfinger. I love the second worst Rotten Tomatoes one is Man with the Golden Gun, and there is just some absolutely fun stuff in there. Moonraker's ridiculous. Whatever. But it's going to take forever to watch all these movies for the podcast. I don't know how we're going to do it. <laughs> for sure. I did want to add one other advice for uh, new viewers, just a content warning. There is a graphic scene of tor- torture in this film. <laughs> that um, is true. And yeah. whew, that is the one thing so that stood out in my memory was that scene. It is uh, mm. that one. Ooh, yeah, that one was rough. So just, you know, go into it with uh, ready for that. All right, let's take a break and we'll be back with spoilers. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. All right, welcome back. I do kind of keep thinking like maybe we'll do some podcasts where we record the first half before we watch the movie and then go away and uh, watch the movie and then record at a later date. But that, that's that'd not be how fun at some point. Yeah, I, I assume there are some amount of people who listen to the listen to the first half and then have a big break before the second half. But for us, it's basically immediate. You know, take a little break, get some water, and come back yeah. and, and hit it again. But anyway, so but how did you watching this movie? What fifteen yeah. years later, sixteen years later? How did how did you find it? You know, it so. <sighs> I enjoyed the film as a film. My experience watching the film was a little bit lackluster this time for things that had nothing to do with the film itself. Just like I'm, I've been so busy that mm-hmm. I was watching it and uh, had to kind of cram it in to make sure that I could get it in at a time when I was free. And you know, it sucked me in more than I was then. Well, I don't want to say more than I was expecting to, but I had so much going on that I kind of assumed that I would be watching it and it would be a little bit more work to watch it because it wouldn't be able to really suck me in that much. But yeah, uh, yeah it really did bring me in. I had to watch it in three different settings, so so that did throw me off a little bit. And there were a couple of parts that I didn't get to watch with as close attention as I wanted to. So my film viewing experience was not ideal at all this time, but the film was good enough to still like catch my attention. I enjoyed it a lot. There were a lot of things that stood out to me as just, I don't know. I bumped up against more um, watching them this time than I, than I did originally. But overall, I think the film really holds up. Yeah. I, I had large, Oh wait, but I did want to ask, did you watch it all by yourself? All three different sections were just you? No. uh, Well, okay. So I watched it. This is what was part of the trick of it because we had so much things going on. I had the rest of the family was like in the room, but doing other things as Mm -hmm. I watched it. So I turned it on, but they were like watching bits and pieces of it as I was watching bits and pieces of it. And that's why some of the parts I couldn't watch with as much attention because I was distracted by like homework or by like people knocking on the door or other things that were going on. And so they kind of, that was, that was the trick just because uh, I couldn't dedicate, you know, as much time, uh, as much dedicated time as I normally take. 
But yeah, so they were interested. Uh, Ethan was watching a little bit of it out of the corner of his eye. He was <laughs> uh, particularly interested in the action sequences and also that torture sequence. He, his eyes were kind of glued to the screen on that one, I think, just from. Sure, they're uh, extremely yeah, compelling, yeah. A, a little bit traumatized. Uh, and then Lori was watching it and kind of got into it a little bit more in the. In, the second half of it from the uh, the betrayal going forward. So, and then we had a little bit of conversations with it as we were doing it. And then Addison was popping in and out and uh, saw some things that uh, as well, so saw bits and pieces of it. So I got a little bit of their reactions, but not the full experience reaction on it. Yeah, makes sense. So we normally, I, the, I, I think every movie I've watched with Mare I've mentioned on here, but the vast majority of them she doesn't watch with me. And so normally I watch the movie like when either when she's running out to do errands or um, just sometime in the middle of the day, or I'll find a night where she's home late and I'll watch it then. But this one, we on Saturday and Sunday morning, we normally will watch like an episode of a TV show or something that's over over breakfast. That's as as long as we don't have anything going on that day. And but this time we were we were in the in between shows. So we didn't we were like, well, I don't know if we're really able to like start something new or in the mood to start something new. So I was like, well, why don't do you want to just watch the beginning of Casino Royale? And then you can sort of jump out whenever whenever you want to or I'll finish it later in the day and she was like oh yeah we can we can do that and put it on and before I knew it it was like an hour and 20 minutes had gone by and yeah it was just like oh boy and she ended up getting up she didn't watch the the third act of the movie with me but I was just like oh boy this is it's just an absolute rush and the set pieces hold up so well. One of the things that really surprised me, and we'll talk about it, I guess we only have one of the set pieces in our scenes, so we can really talk about it here. I was so surprised that the two biggest set pieces, so the parkour scene, but then also the airport scene, there is like almost no dialogue in those scenes. They're largely silent movies, and they are so crisp and so clean and it is just such immaculate visual storytelling in my opinion that yeah i i was just absolutely floored and this is two years before wally came out which of course has i think two years right wally was 2008 that sounds yeah. right yeah um so two years before wally came out which of course opens with that 15 minute essentially silent movie just no no dialogue at all i mean the movie itself doesn't really have a ton of dialogue and so i thought that was interesting to think about those two things happening and it's something we don't really get in like the avengers films or the the marvel movies because they're so quippy which i which i love Mm -hmm. but it wasn't something that i was expecting for this movie yeah, it reminded me a lot of the the Bourne films that do do a lot of that. The action mm. set pieces are kind of that kind of style, but it, those ones are a little bit different too. They this one, 
Because the Bourne films use so much shaky cam in the big... Right, there's in almost the none in this one. Yeah, the, the visual dialogue is so crisp and clear, and also the blocking is so good. And just every every bit, each place where the next step is coming up is, is communicated and foreshadowed so clearly. Um, and it's really easy to keep track of the action and kind of the way that it's moving. Uh, that that very much impressed me, again, with both of those action sequences. The one that was a little bit less uh, like that for me was the one at the end in, like, the, the water in Venice and all of those things. Yes, I would agree. But I think that's... I, I don't think that's a weakness. I think it's actually the deliberate uh, from a, a point of view of, like, that's a, seat, a part where James Bond is less James Bond, and he is is not as in control and not as I don't know if that makes sense. He's 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 not fully aware of everything that's going on, so it's well, unsettling he, us along with him. Yeah, he at that point he's become emotionally involved, which is sort of the whole right. the whole thing of the movie, and I. It's not something you expect from a James Bond movie, and I wasn't really... I was pretty thrown off when there's that scene between... It's before the poker before the poker scene where M tells him that she's going to put him into the poker game, and she, she says... Hold on, I have it here in my notes. I would ask you if you can remain emotionally detached emotionally detached but i don't think that's your problem and Mm. i wasn't really expecting there to be like this central metaphor from the poker table for james bond for james bond's character arc in that way and it's clunky like she just straight out says it but it also does require like a little bit of knowledge of the game of poker and of course like you've been dealing with this with magic like the anytime you have a game of chance you have to like emotionally divorce yourself from the results because what matters is the decisions that you make not what ends up happening and they don't draw a crisp parallel between that and the game of poker but i think that's intentional yeah and and it's also it's also kind of like the idea behind behind james bond right this thematic Mm -hmm. uh approach to uh to the character like having the knowledge of james bond as a character going in and the way that he's always been portrayed as this emotionally detached character that gets the job done and seeing seeing that being a little bit different in this film yeah and it's something that will impact daniel craig's entire tenure in in the franchise which i know you haven't seen past quantum of solace but yeah it's something that he's to be quite frank i didn't see all of quantum of solace because i fell asleep in the movie theater as i was watching it so um... quantum of solace (laughs) is rough all of the crisp clear lack of shaky cam in this movie is basically issued in quantum of solace there is a lot of shaky cam in that movie and it makes it pretty rough to i i do need to rewatch it i now i kind because i love this so much i'm like i kind of just want to watch the next four yeah i i kind of wanted to go back and watch them as well but additionally i think that as being a more mature viewer i think that i could i could get more out of quantum of solace now uh well 
Yeah. And this isn't a Quantum of Solace podcast, but I had such high expectations going into that movie because I had just spent whatever, 50 hours of my life watching 21 James Bond movies or whatever. And so there was just no way that movie was going to live up to expectations at that point. Yeah, no, it's too it's too hard. But yeah, like you said, let's let's come on back to Casino Royale. Yeah. Um, yeah. The oh, and the other thing, oh, I wanted to ask you, so what did you think of this movie musically? Um I don't know, like it's a it all the songs have been in my head since I watched it. It's just like the the score has been in my head since I watched it. Um Yeah. Uh, so there was there anything that stood out to you as odd? I don't know how much research you did, but you're also not as familiar with the franchise as I am. No, there's not anything that stood out to me as particularly odd. So um, yeah, I just enjoyed the music quite a bit. So one of the things that, and I remember loving loving this about it when I saw it the first time and thinking it was very clever that they did this, is they don't play the james bond theme until the very end of the movie which yes i was aware of that yes yeah because i i recognize the james bond film from uh the james bond theme from playing goldeneye because you know when you're playing a video game you get the theme song (laughs) so much like into your body you know and so so there are places though where it i can't remember what the word is for it where you get like in the score, the way that it's built in, you get like hints of the of the theme, but just like exactly. in the middle of other things, uh, which is, I don't know. Every time one of those came, I was like, "Oh, is that? Is are we getting it now? No, not yet. Okay, is it yeah. now? This time, not yet. Okay, so and then you don't get it to the end, till the very end. So normally it happens in that sequence where he before the opening song, you get the you get the theme song there when he turns and then shoots the camera that's when you normally get it right but they don't do this do that in this movie and it's sort of to signal that he isn't james bond yet he hasn't become the character that we have known and watched for 20 movies but other than that you're you're exactly right they sort of develop their way through and of course there's the da 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 that everyone that everyone knows but this the section that you're alluding to that you hear throughout the score is there's these like rising semitones the Mm -hmm. and so it's that four note theme and that normally comes before those like big horn hits Um, And so what they did in this score is they would do those elongated first semitones, the da-da, and then the theme would go off somewhere else. And so, yes, it was exactly intended to, like, give you that feeling of, like, oh, here's the theme. Oh, no, it's just another, it's just another theme. And it was one of those things I remembered from seeing it the first time, but... I didn't remember just like how well they had done it for this movie. Yeah, and it's a it didn't stick out to me in this viewing, but I mean, it's it's clear that that's what they're doing, and it's it's great. Um, I don't know, it had me on the edge as I was watching it. Like, is this the moment? Uh, and they just they bring you right to the edge, and then 
they back off a little bit and they make you wait. Yeah. So they're they're just tease you. Just, they just tease you. Okay. Let's talk about the let's get let's get into our scenes. So the first scene that we're going to talk about is yours. So yeah. So uh, this is from what I understand and the James Bond films that I've watched. This is like classic James Bond. Is you start off with this in media res uh, opening. When I'm teaching about in media res in in school, I usually refer to it as a James Bond opening, which is this idea of a scene that happens and the action or the scene the is already in place. So we're not getting like backstory of what's going on. We're jumping right into the middle of the story right before a climax of some kind of story. And in this one, we have this guy that's like going into this big glass building in black and white. Um, yeah, and the cinematography is following him in really interesting ways as it's going through. And I found it particularly interesting the way that they used the reflections off of the glass um, and uh, and the way that they moved the camera as they're following him along. You get this sense of this building that is, you know, entirely glass and completely vulnerable, but also that there's not really any place to hide within this in- entire building because, I mean, it's all open. Every single thing that you see until the guy goes and opens this office turns around big glass window on the side and we see that james bond is hidden has found the one place to hide in this entire building uh and has been completely invisible and you get such a sense for with this opening of james bond and his his ability to to work as a spy but then what's really fascinating about this is he starts having a, a conversation with this guy and you get the you realize that James Bond is there to kill him, but he's not supposed to be able to. He doesn't have his his two kills for his license to kill. And it starts intercutting with him having a fight in a bathroom with someone that he ends up killing. Now, this scene was really, really fascinating because it is, again, from what I have seen of James Bond, it is nothing like other James Bond films. The no, those completely different. Yeah, it is so gritty and so rough and so personal, the the way that that fight is happening, um, to the point where he gets this guy and drowns him in the sink of the bathroom. So he turns, on, turns it on and holds his face in, and it is so close and intimate as this is going on. And it's just... The way to open the film with that style, to have like the measured, uh, very careful camera work as it's going through this glass building, and then have that juxtaposed against this just very rough and gritty and intimate fight that's going on in the intercuts, and then jumping right into the thing where you know the, he shoots the camera and then does the, the James Bond thing. I don't know, it's, it's such a good opening for a film. It's one of the best ones that I've seen. Yeah, and it's the other way it's different from the other James Bond films is it's not really it's not really fun. Like no. almost every James Bond opening is just it has no relationship to to the rest of the plot generally, which this one does, so it's a little different in that way. Or at least it has it doesn't have relationship to the plot, but it does have relationship to James Bond's character arc and his right. his development, but it's just not a very fun scene. It's a very interesting scene. And it's it's enough that... And I had forgotten that the movie opened this way. I thought it opened with the parkour scene. That when 
I turned it on. I was like, oh, wait, did I hit the wrong movie? <laughs> is this is this mm-hmm. the right one? Yeah, I felt um, the same way. I did I did the same thing because I had remembered the parkour scene, and which has the structure of a typical James Bond in Made Arrest opening, um, uh-huh. with the with the chase and a big set piece and uh, just a like fun action scene to start off with. But choosing to do this other opening in the black and white is, I don't know, for me that's a masterful directing choice to put that together. Yeah, we I always learned about the opening James Bond scene in like the hero's journey classes Mm -hmm. because before the hero's journey starts sometimes you get an introduction which doesn't really slot into the rest of the hero's journey and it's that that James Bond opening sequence that's just there to give you a sense of the world and sort of set the tone of the movie is is what I've always learned for that but yeah I I love this scene and it also sets up that James Bond's spy ability, which you don't always see in a lot of the other movies, and you do get to see a couple times in this one. Like, you really, it really leans hard into the fact that, like, he is able to figure out where M lives, and he's able to break into her apartment, and he's able to get her login. And that's just like a skill that he has. While also in the rest of the movie, we're going to see that he, there are other skills that he's not necessarily as well developed in that we would expect him to be the best at right he doesn't he's he's an exceptional spy at this point he isn't a superhero um yeah and it's uh, yeah very clever and i even watching this the first time i had seen enough bond to feel the difference uh -hmm. and to feel that this was something very different that we were getting and is still you still see the roots of the character though Mm -hmm. and so that i find really interesting as well well, you get just that quiet confidence when that knowing that he's a step ahead when the the guy that he ends up killing pulls the gun on him and goes to shoot it and then just click. And oh yeah, you think I didn't I didn't know where your gun was and it's just like, "Oh, right. That's who that's who we're tracking for this movie." Right. Yeah. A great scene. So, the performance is really good too and choosing to put this in black and white I think is also very clever. It gives you this sense of nostalgia and like tying in with these older films, though I I know those, those films uh, are in color, but it gives you the sense of tying in with all of the nostalgia in a really, in a really clever way. Well, and I think what's important about it is it lets it, because the timeline of everything is so wonky and you're not really supposed to think about it. It does need you to think about, it does offset it from the rest of the movie in yes. a different way. It's like this is pre double O status, and then once we hit color, we're in double O yep. status. And and yeah, and it opens, as you said, with those Dutch angles and it opens in the black and mm-hmm. white. And it's just like the this is a departure. Like we are tonally different than all of the previous movies that you've seen. So yeah, up. <laughs> the lighting is also really interesting because they make the choice to use a lot of hard light. Um, mm-hmm. So hard light being light that kind of like cuts through the frame and you can kind of see the line between the light and the shadows, uh, whereas soft light is more diffuse. And this one uses a lot of hard light. It has a lot of shadows. It has a lot of bright lights that are isolated. Um, and 
it, it really that also really adds to the tone. You just get get a sense that this is going to be sharper, it's going to be crisper, and it's going to be darker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk? Move on and talk about our next scene. Yeah, let's move on and talk about the parkour scene. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, again, I had mentioned that the, the parkour scene really stood out to me because it it was used promotionally beforehand, and I can't remember how much of it was used, but I distinctly remember seeing this scene like on YouTube or something before I ever went and watched the movie. Um, mm. And I did not, and I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, it's probably good that you didn't, but uh, but oh wow, this scene really stands out. So. To try and describe this scene, you know, James Bond is working with some other spy who, I don't know if he dies mm-hmm. or something happens, he, he falls in a pit well. with the cobra. Really yeah, really sucks, yeah. Yeah he, he, yeah, he definitely sucks, though. He's not very good, and he doesn't appear ever again, so whatever, screw that guy, right? So, but there's a, someone that works as, as a bomber that is connected with some terrorist organization that we don't know at this point. And they're surveilling him. The other spy makes a whole bunch of mistakes in a row, like five different mistakes in a row. And the bomber is clued into what's going on and then takes off running. And James Bond starts chasing him. And this is uh, Sebastian Foucault, who is, you know, one of the originators of the, of the sport isn't even the right word. He describes it as being more like dance, more being more like an art. The art or the craft, yeah. Yeah, yeah the art and craft of, of parkour. And so he takes off running and his skills are just great. And you had a lot of this style of movement coming around, uh, parkour kind of ideas that the the movement itself kind of built up in i think 2000 uh, or 2004 up through 2006 but in the born films you still get some similar kind of pieces that would f- fill in a lot of the the a lot of parkour types of of action but his movements are incredibly crisp and it popularized parkour uh, dramatically it, it had such a huge impact on the sport uh, i remember at the time period that this came out and then like people were talking about parkour constantly and i remember videos of people like talking about how to do parkour and like trying to practice and all of that kind of stuff coming out afterwards regardless he's moving and running through a bunch of different places they're running through the jungle they run through like a, a town that has like some markets and things like that they jump off of a bunch of buildings they come to like an abandoned uh, or a, a building that's in construction they move up through this building that's going through the construction they knock some stuff off so this stuff catches on fire they go up the building and then they come down through all of the buildings and go through the construction site jumping through everything uh, and then they come over to the embassy and then there's a chase through the middle of the embassy embassy uh to the outside of the embassy where james bond ends up uh shooting the bomber in front of the cameras blowing up um half the embassy (laughs) and uh and then taking off with the with the with the backpack i don't know that that's my best description of the this one it's there's a lot that happens in this scene though yeah it is just an absolute complete and total rush like it is even when I rewatched it for the podcast, I was just like, oh boy, here, here we go. Um, yeah, this is just an absolute rush. And one of the things that I love about this is I said that we get to see James Bond fully in control of the situation in in that first scene. But in this scene, it is clear and they go through great pains to show that he is not as skilled parkour wise like he falls down a lot he hurts himself a lot but there are times where you see him like using his ingenuity and his knowledge of the area around him where 
the guy that he's chasing has to climb climbs up the rope and then he just like releases the rope and flies up or yes. uh, the section where he slides on the ground and then through the hole instead of having to parkour off of the side of the elevator <laughs> like like the free runner does and I think it's also because it's sort of structured like so this sequence is seven and a half minutes but it's kind of structured like a three-act play like there are yes. three distinct locations there's the running there's the what is it called the scaffolding is yes. it scaffolding yeah uh, yeah the scaffolding and then you have the section inside the building and then you have the section at the embassy Yes. And all three of those are distinct locations. And I kept thinking, like, how, like, where does this go from here? Because I, I knew that there were other sections coming, but I couldn't remember how they kept this seven and a half minute sequence exciting. <laughs> but yeah, and it's continually surprising. Um, mm-hmm. And it, there's a lot of ingenuity with it, but also there's a lot of like, it builds character really well. And these are my favorite kinds of action scenes that do this yeah. with the building character. You had mentioned that James Bond uses his awareness of the surroundings to be able to to keep pace with this free runner. Though, in the end, I'll note that that he escapes. The free runner does escape and gets to the embassy. Um, mm-hmm. And so, which should be a safe place to him, for him. And it's only because uh, James Bond goes in there. But so James Bond is using his ingenuity, his awareness of the situation. But each of these things that it shows is also James Bond. Uh, I don't want to say breaking the rules, but there's some places where he specifically breaks the rules. But he has less care for the place around him and the people around him than the parkour runner does that he's chasing. Right, yeah. Um, he's the and one who drops all those steel steel rods or whatever they are. He drops the steel rods. He runs through the drywall on the one spot. And <laughs> yeah, he, that's right. Uh, he uh, drops, like, the this whole, oh, like, this elevator down without, like, any care for what's down below it. And, and then he barges into the assembly or uh, into the embassy, I'm sorry. And he's going through and just destroying and shooting people as he's going through there. And so you get a sense for a James Bond, he's... Uh, it's not that he's so in control of the situation, but he's willing to break any kinds of rules in order to accomplish the mission. And you get a sense that he has to do this because he's not in control, and it's the only way that he can catch up with this with this guy that has more control that he, than he does, and he can only succeed in his mission by breaking rules that aren't supposed to be broken. Yeah, I, th- I think that comes through really clearly and... Yeah, it's a per- perfect way to set up this new version of James Bond that we haven't really seen yet. Yeah, it's... I agree. It's also... A, it's interesting because him and his partner that are there are like the two white guys in... Right, yeah. And everybody else is black in this entire, entire place, and James Bond is just like not caring about them and he's acting indiscriminately and not with regard to their safety and ends up like killing multiple people 
And I think that's a deliberate choice to like highlight the racism there. I don't mm-hmm. think it's uh, excusing it, and I think that's an important part. I think that it's it's trying. I think it's a critique of the of the way that so many spy films take this kind of route, where you have like this white spy, this the master spy that is going into these like quote unquote exotic locations where a lot of people of color are at and behaving in a way that is very dangerous to the people there but you don't normally see it it's all left off screen but in this one we are seeing it uh, and we're getting a sense of the recklessness of james bond's actions yeah and i think the way it drives that home is because the ends don't really justify the means like he needs to take this guy alive but fails to do that and instead he only ends up with a cell phone yes yeah uh and then he gets completely reamed by judy dench as well yeah so the and the only other thing that i do want to say about this is it is definitely once you're not watching it in the rush of the movie and the excitement of what's happening it is a lot of this or almost all of it if not all of it is practical effects and it is worth and a lot of it they did like you know with uh, cables, although I don't think the free runner had as many cables as everyone else did. And it is worth just going and really paying attention to how that camera is moving because a lot of those pans are really so spectacular and you don't really notice it when you're in it. But if you can, because it's your second or third watch, if you can like detach yourself from the emotion or the adrenaline of it, it it's really, really impressive. It is. There's also, you can see a lot of the making of this scene in particular. There's a lot of videos online with behind-the-scenes stuff from this. And you're absolutely right. Sebastian Foucault has very limited amounts of safety, like harnesses and things like that, as he is going through. Daniel Craig definitely has more. And Daniel Craig's a stunt person. Um, Yeah, yeah, and a stunt double. Um, Stream a crossover with Free Solo. uh, Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So... But yeah, it's Sebastian Foucault, a lot of those moves he is doing with with almost no like uh what's the word I'm looking for? Like fail safe. Yeah. Safety. Yeah, no yeah. fail safe. Uh almost no fail safe. And he just is that good. Yeah, they I mean they clearly worked extremely hard on this sequence and if you watch some of those making of videos like they want to tell you that they're so proud of it. And so, Uh and they should be like, it created a rush in that theater. It created a feeling that I don't think I'd ever felt in a movie before. I I mean, I was still young, so I didn't have that much movie going experience, but it felt different. It did. And I think that it, like every action movie I've seen since this point has a parkour scene. Um, (laughs) And, they're not all as good. Most of them are not as good as this one. No, no um, I don't think any of them are. I there's mean, only a handful. The novelty of it. So there's the one scene. One scene that comes to my mind that kind of that kind of can hold a candle to it is in uh, Captain America: The Winter Soldier when he goes. Uh, there's a couple of scenes from that one, but particularly the, That's right, the yeah. one on the boat, and then also the one on the bridge and things like that. So, but yeah, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of parkour scenes that that, that hold up to this one, and. 
you know, I attribute that to Sebastian Foucault in particular. Oh, uh, sure, of course. Yeah, yeah they, got, his... they got the real deal. They didn't teach an actor to do it. Yes. Well, the other thing that's really fascinating with it behind the scenes is they brought him on and they, they were like, okay, we're going to, he's going to be a stunt guy and he's going to do these things and, you know, we're going to, we're going to make the, make the other things work. We'll try to limit how much he actually has to perform. And then it turned out that he was actually very good at acting. He didn't really have experience. But they were shocked with how good his acting abilities were. And so then they kind of changed things to give him more time to to perform like his face and his reactions and all of those things as as the sequence was going. So the most of it was very choreographed ahead of time, but those things where you see him and you see the interactions between him and Bond, those those were kind of added in. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's it's pretty neat. Should we move on to our next scene? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the next scene that I wanted to talk about, and this is maybe because we're stream it, I wanted to talk about this one because obviously there's that bus set piece that is like pretty yeah. amazing, and the finale of the movie is also really great. But I wanted to talk about this train scene between mm-hmm. Bond and Vesper. Yeah. And it's the first time that he meets Vesper. And the reason I wanted to talk about it was because I th- like. I love this dialogue between them. And a lot of it is like, I think they have really good chemistry together. And obviously we talked about Daniel Craig's acting prowess, but also this is dialogue that didn't really feel particularly familiar to me in a James Bond film. Like it felt... Yeah, that makes sense. It felt a lot quicker, a lot smarter, a lot snippier, but also the energy between them (laughs) really reminded me of that train scene that we talked about for north by northwest yeah where i had the the same thoughts as i was watching it the the exact same yeah i i thought you might and so i i couldn't help i mean there are a lot of spy movies where they have train sequences so i i would who can know for sure whether it's a direct homage or not but it certainly felt that way it certainly felt like it was hearkening back towards to that north by northwest scene for sure and it's i don't know it felt it felt it felt like they this was on purpose like uh, yeah um, it felt like the it i don't know especially in the way that james bond is meeting up with her and you get the sense it's like James Bond is supposed to be the super spy, but she also is like outmaneuvering him in the conversation, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. it reminded me a lot of that conversation as well uh, in North by Northwest, which is a little bit different because um, what's his name? Uh, Gary Cooper's Jimmy character, or, Jim, yeah, wait, Gary yeah, Cooper. Gary right. Cooper's character yeah. is completely like uh, he doesn't know what he's doing at all, and the I can't remember her name. The 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 other performer, um, she's the experienced spy. So you get this idea in in Casino Royale that James Bond is coming in and knows everything, and then he's not quite as not quite as good. He's there's somebody else here that can outmaneuver him in a lot of different uh, places. Yeah, she's she's really able to go toe to toe with him, and the the other big departure here is they don't sleep together after this, yeah. which is generally what you would expect from a James Bond film. Here, James Bond is like. As you said, he becomes a superhero, and part of that superhero, part one of his superpowers is that he's just irresistible to women. Like, the, it doesn't really matter. And they 
this movie i think does a really good job of setting up how different that this version of james bond is or this prototype of james bond is because he doesn't sleep with her here and the previous um woman who he used to get to whoever he was using her to get demetrius to get to demetrius when he orders the champagne and caviar for one uh that is not generally not not what you would expect from from our good boy good boy james here yeah that's that stood out to me as well because normally you're expecting james bond would you know totally follow through with sleeping with her and then but it's really interesting to me because he doesn't he doesn't sleep with the first woman i can't remember her name she's she's not on screen for a lot of time demetrius's wife but he does act with such callous disregard when she gets killed mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and so and Again, this is this is deliberate. Like they're trying to deconstruct this idea of of James Bond and the way that he treats women, and it's definitely a critique from the point of view of the film. It's not. A, I don't know if that it's an explicit critique, but I don't think that they're that they're looking at James Bond and the way that he's reacting to that as a positive thing. Yeah. So I I've done a lot of thinking about this, and I think I think what's going on here is Daniel Craig has. He, he's talked a little bit about how James Bond is a misogynist and sort of the history and culture of dealing with playing this character. So I think he came in with a specific point of view and he's bringing a lot of that to the film. But I don't know that the producers or the director were necessarily on board with that. But then over the course of his movies, you get to see a little bit more involvement there, a little bit more mutual understanding between him and the filmmakers or at least he gets a little bit more power in how everything works yeah this this makes sense to me i do think that there is some amount of deliberate deliberateness to the deconstruction of the masculinity of of james bond and i think Mm -hmm. that because of that there's some of these things that are not just deconstructing the masculinity, but also deconstructing the misogyny. I think the parts where they're deconstructing misogyny are mostly accidental. And they're a result of deconstructing the masculinity. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It, yeah, I think that's an, an apt way of putting it. So, you know, there's there's different scenes that have like a little bit of like homoeroticism to them. And there's, you know, the torture scene, where it, which is very emasculating. And several other sequences that, that have this kind of vibe. And to me, it feels deliberate that they're saying like James Bond as this pinnacle of like masculinity, this idea. And they're, they're just taking it and feminizing it a little bit and kind of approaching it from a different angle. And so they also had some accidental, you know, improvements on the misogyny of the character because of that. Well, and I think you get it in the dialogue here too, because they are... Normally you'd expect this dialogue to be sort of ripe with double entendres that James is sort of throwing out into the world. And he sort of gets to just like control the world and there are going to be double entendres that we find charming and that the women find charming and that work but instead like his his repartee here is you know shooting back with like (laughs) i'm able to detect an undercurrent of sarcasm from your tone when (laughs) she is using overt sarcasm and instead he's the one who sort of i mean i think he comments that she's good looking as well but he's the one who really gets objectified when she says Mm -hmm. uh 
that he has a nice ass and then he gets to say oh so you you noticed my ass Mm -hmm. and yeah it's not like they didn't go to 100 here but yeah i think it is present there in the text yeah i agree and then additionally she sizes him up and and has a suit made for him um Mm -hmm. and it feels to me like now i don't know if this is in a lot of other james bond but it feels to me like usually james bond is the one buying a dress for the woman and that the woman is not the one buying the suit for him yeah i can't think that it's ever happened before this yeah, so so that's really fascinating. He does buy a dress as like a, you know, uh, I love that foreshadowing where he does end up buying the dress for her later on. And kind of the repartee between them because of that and the sexual tension that's built up. But it, yeah, this is a great scene. And like you said, their chemistry is so good. Mm-hmm. Ava Green is the is the performer that plays Vesper Lynn. She, is, she does a great job. She's such a great I, actress. I adore her in this movie, yeah. Yeah, I, I think... You know, just a quick aside and a spoiler for what's at the end of the film. You know, this is the spoilers section, so that's fine. But uh, this is another sequence where the this character ends up getting fridged. And, you know, it's handled in a little bit different way than maybe like a classic fridging. But I really would have liked to have seen more of her later on. Yeah, we can talk about that here. I was going to talk about it in cleanup, but while we're talking about their relationship. Yeah, I, I have a couple things that I wanted to talk about there. I, I knew it was coming and I haven't watched this movie since I sort of like became aware of the fridging. And I was, I guess I was a little pleasantly surprised by how little it bothered me because for, for a couple of reasons, one, she betrays him. Yeah. So she's the one who has the agency there and she, the, her death is not what, causes the character journey for him the betrayal is what causes the character journey for him right and secondly she chooses to die she's the one who makes the decisive action of killing herself or to plunge into the into the water yeah all of this all this is true and it definitely makes it a little bit better but at the same time it is a choice by the writers to have her choose to sacrifice herself. And, you know, it is, there is still this idea of like this, this female character that is also navigating through the boundaries of uh, areas that are typically masculine. And this is what mm-hmm. ends up with her dying. So those are also problematic things. It is better than like a lot of other fridgings, but at the same time, I was disappointed with with a little bit of that. Maybe not as much as I normally would. But the biggest thing is that I just wanted to see her again. <laughs> She's so good. Oh, 100%. And part of, part of what made the memory of it so much worse than how it actually happens in the movie is because they really utilize, they continue to utilize the emotional tragedy of her death in future movies and so even though the impact in this specific movie is from the betrayal her death will have long-lasting impacts on this version of james bond yeah that makes sense and i haven't seen those ones but that makes sense to me yeah they don't really get to get away from that sure at least that's my memory of it anyway (laughs) it's been a long time since i saw since i saw some of those the I also wanted to talk a little bit while we're talking about their relationship about the scene with them in the shower. Yes. 
Although actually we can talk about that and because our next scene is I wanted to talk about the this poker scene, this poker sequence. Uh, it's a long poker sequence. <laughs> which is essentially it's a 30 minute sequence and I talked about the bravery of this movie and I think the word I used was audacious because it just I, I can't think of a better word for it. And sticking your giant second act set piece as a poker game is just so unbelievable to me. And I cannot believe that they got... Hold on, I wrote down how long it was. Yeah, so it starts at an hour 11 and ends at an hour 42. So 31 minutes. And the they do... They do it in a really smart way like not all of that 31 minutes is poker so yeah it's intercut with some action scenes and yeah they take breaks so they have the they have that first poker sequence and then they have their first break where bond kills the would-be assassins and then they have more poker and then they have the sort of the fallout from vesper presumably witnessing her first death or being associated with her first death where her and bond have that little little shower sequence and then you go back to poker where bond loses and then you get the little you get to meet felix you get to meet felix lighter which i'm guessing didn't really mean a ton to you uh felix the character no except that it's jeffrey wright Except um, that it is Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. It's Jeffrey Wright, and oh, Jeffrey Wright is so good. Uh, I definitely wanted us. more of him. I don't know if he shows up later on in the other films, but oh, he is such a good performer, and he's just excellent in everything that he's in. Really elevates every scene. Yeah, so F- Felix is known, like, not counterpart, but he's like a colleague, an, an American colleague of James Bond. So he That's shows it. up in several movies, and this is so it's like a big deal that we get to see when he met felix and they ah okay uh, yeah yeah a collegiate relationship where they respect each other and sort of are able to that's um, cool help each other help each other out when necessary yeah this is Uh, like when han solo runs into chewbacca uh in the solo movie so not quite that degree but yeah yeah so you you get that scene with felix and where he tells him that he's gonna gonna stake him back in for the for the tournament and then he finally wins and then and then the poker's finally over and yeah so i love this sequence this is the sequence that kind of makes the movie and the i don't know if you remember this but 2005 is when the world series of poker started as its expansion so i have to imagine like it's probably just a happy accident that this movie happened to coincide with when Texas Hold'em was like really taking off and people were starting to like poker was starting to be shown on TV and people started to like know what it was and Hold'em became like the primary way that people when you say poker people thought you meant Hold'em instead of any number of varieties of poker and yeah, I, I think it's just luck. I think it's just luck how it happened to time out because I don't think they could have known it was too early in the expansion of poker. Like it hadn't even expanded to the UK yet. I don't think that happened until two thousand seven. So I don't I don't think they could have known where it was gonna go. 
for sure. Yeah, I think you're accurate on that. Though there's a long history of poker being used in films, and there's so many homages to the way those films work in the past. But mm-hmm. uh, they, the you can tell that they're trying to update and talk about po- poker in a different way than previous films have. Talk about it in a much more, uh, for lack of a better word, legitimate way. They yeah. they treat the game in a in, you know so much of poker that comes primarily from westerns and things are so focused on like the uh the emotional aspects and bluffing aspects and this one i, I love the moment where he's like does all this stuff to find out the tell and then we find out that that the was was playing him with the tell in order to throw him off uh mm-hmm. and it's just it's masterful because then we get this sense that like it they're actually playing like Lashif is playing the game, and it's not—it's not all the other stuff that's that's making this work. It is the the actual numbers and like the game of poker that is making this this that's driving this scene. Yeah, and th- so there are a couple things that they do here that are really smart. One of them is they have his—I can't remember his name. His, the the guy that he's meeting with is narrating the game to to Vesper. Yes, and that is so, Mathis. Mathis, uh, yes. Giancarlo so Mathis Gianni, is, Giannini, uh, Giannini. Yes, Giancarlo Giannini. Yeah, so Mathis is narrating it to Vesper, and the like. it so obviously serves the function of being able to tell the audience what is going on. Yes. And uh, viewing this through a modern lens, there is certainly a feeling of like, what do you mean vesper the accountant vesper the one who like knows the money doesn't understand what poker is doesn't understand the basics of how the most popular version of poker poker works yeah yeah but and but will you poker was not as popular and as ubiquitous in 2006 as it is now for sure yeah so so it, it was not something that like i thought about and some of that i'm probably sure was just like latent misogyny that i wasn't thinking about but some of it was also that the world has changed since then it's people know it a lot more yeah and one of the things that they really focused on for this movie was for the most part there are a couple deviations but for the most part the poker is all legit and that is not something that had really happened in movies the same way if you watch basically any poker scene from any movie before this, you get a lot of scenes of like people just thro- betting and throwing their chips into the center of the table. This is something that's called splashing the pot, but anyone who has played poker knows that you cannot do this because you have to be able to track what your bets are. So like if you're acting behind me, if you're going to, decide whether to call better raise after i've made a bet you have to there's always a chance that you could raise and so if you raise we have to be able to see what money i bet to know what the difference is if i decide Mm. to call right and so this is something that's generally been eschewed for the dramatic impact of people throwing their chips into the center center of the table but they didn't do that for this movie they they really I'm, I'm just an amateur poker player, you know, but I've 
played a lot of poker in my life. And there there were only a couple moments where where I bumped on the poker in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest one is at the very end when because so the way poker works is the person who forces the action the one who has the last bet is the one who has to show their cards first uh, because then the other player gets the option to gets the option to muck their cards like they don't have to give that information away but of course James Bond is the one who does the final action for dramatic effect yeah. yeah but then he shows his cards last you can kind of understand why they did it that way like you you, you know that one I can oh, kind yeah. of understand. Oh, yeah, of course. The other thing that I saw in watching behind the scenes, part of the reason why you have a lot of these scenes where they'll just kind of chuck the money into the pot is because mm-hmm. it's incredibly difficult to film poker sequence sequences and keep the the chips canon, the canonicity of the, of the chips. Oh. Um, because... Like- for continuity stuff? For continuity stuff, yeah. Because not only do you have to have like the right amount in the right kind of piles in the right places. And if you just have people mm-hmm. throwing them into the center, it's much easier to keep track of that. Because you, you don't need to go through and make sure every chip is accounted for that's in the center of the pile. It can just be a big pile. But on this one, it was really difficult. It's, they described it as the most difficult scene to shoot in the movie because of the yeah, mechanics of making all the chips work to make the, to make the continuity of all of the bets work and so but they wanted it to do it because they wanted it to be right so i don't know i i found that fascinating you also got some really cool circular shots showing the entire table yes uh which, which is another thing that uh, generally is avoided for the same issues it's hard to maintain continuity when you're shooting several takes of people I, with yeah. a bunch of chips i would bet they shot a lot of this continuously like it seems like they choreographed it really well. Uh, that is and, accurate. Yeah, they did shoot a lot of it continuously. But, you know, there's also some parts where you just had to do multiple takes. Yeah, of course. That's yeah. how it happens. The other thing that was funny about this is pretty much everybody that was involved in the in the poker game as they were shooting it because they did it for so long kind of became very (laughs) poker addicted afterwards specifically Mm -hmm. mads mickelson who got really invested in playing poker and now he's that's like one of his one of his hobbies is playing poker because of that film doesn't surprise me and he worked hard to get that poker flip too yeah so i mean you you go to a casino and you will see you will see people doing doing their their chip tricks because if you're a real poker player you're sitting at that poker table for eight hours and uh a lot of poker is really boring because if you're a yeah. good poker player you spend like 85 percent of the time not playing yeah you spend well i don't know what the real percentage is but you should fold a lot yeah a lot more than most people think <laughs> so you spend a lot of time just playing with your chips and uh, yeah yeah and observing and talking and Right, of course. The the other sequence that I wanted to talk about in here is this shower sequence where he, James Bond, goes and joins Vesper in the shower and comforts her. I, I knew it was coming. How did you feel about him, like, licking the blood off of her hands, basically, <laughs> absolving her of of these dead people yeah i mean it's it feels like okay so that's weird um 
it feels like it has religious undertones and there's so many uses of water in this film that I think those things are deliberate. So mm-hmm. I think that they're trying to go for like, you know, like a Christian kind of baptism kind of idea and washing blood away. And this kind of metaphor uh, that ties in with the idea of birth and rebirth through those kinds of Christian metaphors. And so I think that's part of why this is there, but it also is weird. It's also weird. It's certainly, I didn't remember that they don't sleep together after this. So certainly is made better once that becomes clear. But there is something that I really love about this sequence, which is from the moment that he gets into the shower with her. And I assume they just had to do this for continuity's sake, but it makes it really affecting. There's no cuts. So mm, yeah. you get the the camera's outside the room and he gets into the shower with her and it sort of zooms in on the close-up of him and they have a couple dialogue lines. He makes the water hotter and then it like zooms back on them and it's all one continuous take but it really does this amazing job when it zooms out of like you get the picture of him and her in the shower and they're sort of like enclosed in in the shower area even though it's not like an enclosed area and so it really gave me this sense of him having let her in in a way that will ultimately be his downfall at the end of this movie in a way that makes him not able to recognize the deceit that is coming and i just aside from the weird finger licking like i found it that we talked about the cinematography the cinematography of this to be so effective yeah and i think part of that is is because of the constraints of the scene obviously like it's a a difficult space to enclose you're dealing with water that is hard to control Mm -hmm. make sure it goes everywhere you have very expensive clothes that they're wearing uh (laughs) that you don't want to like how many suits are you going to ruin with fake blood and with this uh, hot, hot water like steaming down on it But at the same time, it feels to me like they're taking the constraints and then they're also using those constraints to build the story, to do the, to build the thematic elements. They're using the restrictions to breed the creativity there. Yeah. I, I love it. I love, I love this, this whole section that just makes, makes everything work. Yeah. It's a, the, I I, I don't know. I love so much of this film, but I really love the casino, like the whole casino sequence. So yeah, it's it's great. It's way more riveting than a thirty-minute poker sequence should be. Yes, for sure. In the middle of your action movie, mm-hmm. it's good stuff, uh, and it really makes the film work. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think we should move on because I I feel like we both probably have a fair amount of cleanup. I don't have a bunch of cleanup things, but the I have one that'll take me a little while. Okay, yeah, yeah. let's let's start there. Okay, so. This film, he goes into, at the beginning of the film, and he plays this poker game against Alex Dimitrios. This is Mm -hmm. the earlier game that he plays where he wins the guy's car. Now, everyone knows what car this is. This is, he goes out to this classic Aston Martin DB5 that originally showed up in Bond films in the film Goldfinger. And 
is probably the most iconic car ever. I think I think you could make that argument that uh, mm-hmm. that Aston Martin is the DB5 is the most recognizable car. There's a lot of people that, uh, that argue that it's the best car ever. Um, oh wow! It, yeah, and so uh, I remember our talk about North by Northwest and the discussion of the suit that it was like the best suit ever on film. That's the discussions that people have about um, the the mm. the Aston Martin DB5. This is like the best car ever on film. Car enthusiasts often call it like it, it stands out as one of the great cars of all time. I mean, it looks great. It's like... such a good car. Um, Aston Martin uh, was a company that was founded in 1913, and it's tied so integrally into the British consciousness. Uh, like, it is England's car. And mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with the politics over cars, particularly during World War II with the Nazis and things like Porsche and uh, BMWs and and uh, the other big one that I'm forgetting the name. Um with the Mercedes? Volkswagens. Um, Volkswagen, sure. Yeah, Volkswagens and all of these that were produced, at, you know, by Nazis. And so there's a lot of tension with those things. But what's really interesting is that Aston Martin had, they went through a period where they were bought by the Ford Motor Company. And then they were transitioning out of that right as this film came out, Casino Royale. So they were moving over into the a new era where the Ford wasn't owning them anymore. And mm. so the film that, that James Bond drives later in the, f- in the film is the Aston Martin DBS, which released in 2007. So they had the car before it was released to the public. Of course they did. And in order to get the car to do it, they had to build the, ca- the car that he uses, the DBS. Like, they had to piece it together by hand for this film because it hadn't gone all the way through production. So they, it's, and th- I mean, that's what Aston Martin wanted because this was like basically the commercial for the car that would mm-hmm. be the the new car that would like define the era after the, the Ford ownership. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so it was a really big deal because of that. And then after this film came out, before Casino Royale, you could get a DB5, the classic Aston Martin DB5, for like $100,000, which was a very low price for a classic car like that. Uh, If you go and try to get an Aston Martin DB5 now, Mm -hmm. you're looking at, like, for the the worst versions, the lowest cost models, you're looking at, like, $6 million. And there's versions that have gone for, like, 40. Specifically, the versions that are the like original versions that were made for the film Goldfinger, those ones go for really, really expensive. So it's the the other thing that's fascinating about the the Aston Martin, the DB5, the older one, is it's a car that's really good like on straightaways, but does not handle very well on turns. It's not really so mm-hmm. much of like an open road car; it's more of a racing car where you're gonna mm-hmm. be on a track where you don't have to make a lot of tricky turns. It's you have to really crank the steering wheel. So it takes a lot of like actual arm strength to be able to turn that thing on tight corners and it rolls very easily. Yeah. So it's, it's not a great, it's not a great (laughs) open road car. DBS is kind of the opposite of that. It's a really good open open road car that has really good balance. The like suspension and all of those things are, are really good, so it has great traction and handles the open road really well. And it's a fast car, but it's not as fast as some other cars were coming out at that time, so it's not quite as good as on open road. But it's a particularly good car for 
action sequences on film, the DBS, because of the way well, that it and handles. it looks good. Yeah. <laughs> it looks really, really good. The interior is a little bit wonky, but it's, you know, works for, for films because of the, the way that the cab is built. But they have this scene in the film where they flip the car, and that scene is so incredible. They, so... They end up doing the film, and they were trying to get it to be able to get it to flip. And they tried a different, a lot of different ways. They tried to have like a ramp that it would hit, that, to go off so that it would roll as they went, and the stunt driver was getting trying getting in there, but it wasn't quite flipping right, and they couldn't get it to be as dramatic as they wanted. So they ended up adding this air cannon to it with a button, so that as he was driving, the stunt driver would get to the point, push the button, and it would flip, cause the car to flip. And when they got the scene where they finally got this car in and the thing that's on video, they get that car going and they flip it seven times. Um, So he... Oh, my God. And the guy is in the car. The the stunt driver is in that machine as as they hit the... What's on video? There's a guy in there. So the the car rolls the seven times and he gets out and he's like, that's incredible. We got it. And he's like, I think I counted seven. And the world record at the time was, I think, five. Yeah, uh, it was five. So they had to go back and check and make sure. But this is, uh, as far as I know, is the currently standing record of car flips is in this scene in Casino Royale where they got the car to flip seven times. And I assumed it was a model. Like, it... <laughs> yeah it looks so good it looks so good it's a real car and the driver just i mean they had to add the cannon to it but he just does that like he's in it the whole yeah. time he drives it in a specific way to get it to flip that way in the behind the scene stuff when he comes out that guy looks so proud i mean this is this is like a lifetime achievement for someone a stunt driver like him and he is just over the moon about that scene and he should be like it it looks awesome and... yes yeah, it's an incredible, like, you can, I, I wouldn't describe it as an athletic achievement because he's driving the car, but like an incredible sport achievement on top of yeah. looking incredible as a film achievement. And the the way that it's filmed is really good. I don't know. It's That is a great scene and just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. So that's what I have to say about that. That was my main thing that I wanted to to hit. The other thing that I would add, just real quick, there is a website that people can go to. It's called IMCDB, the Internet Movie Card Database. And basically, every film that goes and comes out, there's people that go in and find every car in the film, identify them, and like uh, have the shots of the cars that are in there. And then there's discussion of all these kinds of details that you can find in the IMCDB. It is a really interesting resource. Oh, I should have been using that for my uh, Fast and the Furious watch through. For sure, yeah. There's there's a lot on the fast the, the fast movies. That doesn't surprise me. I only had two things, so I guess when I said I just knew that there <laughs> they might be in depth things. Uh, one of them is I did want to give a bit of a rundown of the drinks in this movie. Mm-hmm. Do, you know James Bond's drink order, right? Uh. Yeah, it's well. I know it's a vodka martini that's shaking and not stirred. Is that is that the yeah. order? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, you haven't seen a lot of James Bond movies, but you know that. Yeah, I know. He that. does not order. He does not order that in this movie. Instead, we get to see a little bit of a a journey for James Bond's drink. So the the first drink that we see him order is a Mount Gay rum and soda, which I think this is part of the journey of emasculating james bond like this is not 
a super strong drink. It's yeah, I think when he orders it, you see him sort of get a look from people like, the hell are you drinking that for? <laughs> and I mean, rum generally, rum is made from sugar cane. So it generally has a little bit of a, it's not viewed as manly as like a whiskey would be or a vodka, which are grain-based. Uh, rum is used in a lot of tiki drinks or a lot of like tropical drinks. Uh, so generally just considered a little a little less manly. He does order the the nice champagne that is, along with Dom Perignon, one of James Bond's champagnes, but then he doesn't drink it. So he leaves <laughs> that for, for the poor lady who's going to get murdered. And then you do see him drinking a whiskey on the rocks, which in terms of the alcohol that we're getting is a step up in terms of our manliness scale. But he is drinking it on the rocks, which... Once you put something on the wa- on the rocks, it again, I'm like alcohol snobbery. This is not necessarily my point of view, <laughs> but it does water it down. Sure. It is going to make it easier to drink. It's going to burn a little less. You're not going to be able to taste it as well. Uh, the, you know, I, I don't drink my whiskey on the rocks, but I have no judgment for people who do. Right. Uh, and then he, the drink that he orders in the at the poker table is what ends up being known as the Vesper. And this was a little confusing to me, but I guess this is a drink that comes straight from Ian Fleming's book, straight from the novel Casino Royale. And so it's four parts vodka and then one part a (laughs) type of liquor that was discontinued in the 1960s called Kaina Lele, I believe, which was something that is made with chincona bark. So has like a kind of quinine flavor and probably is pretty bitter um if you look online you can find people who are like you should use this alcohol instead and you can make this and then shaken and served with served with a lemon peel so that's the drink that he makes and then names asper after vesper so if you didn't really understand what was going on in that moment that's because it's just a little a little easter egg i think and then finally he does order his vodka martini near the end but when the bartender asks do you want it shaken or stirred he says do i look like i give a damn yeah and so (laughs) we we don't get the the classic james bond order in this movie i know people were mad about that when it came out because i remember people being mad about it um Mm -hmm. i expected it yeah i thought it was great so i don't know it's nice because they do give you like you do finally get the Bond, James Bond, at the end, and you do finally get the theme. So I think it's fine to leave some stuff for future movies. You know, you gotta, you gotta get somewhere, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, need to have some room for character growth. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention and clean up is there's this famous, or maybe several famous, and I think the first one is from Doctor No, from the first one. This famous, absolutely ridiculous shot of this woman emerging from the ocean yes in a bathing suit Mm -hmm. and this movie does a very fun twist on that where instead you see well you see a bikinied woman riding a horse but then you get that ridiculous shot of daniel craig james bond emerging from the water dripping wet in his swimsuit and it's just like how did he get there? <laughs> How, yeah. What are we doing here? And it is such a great, 
flip of that that classic James Bond trope. And I have to imagine it's on purpose. Yeah, it's not only was it on purpose, but it was a big part of the promotion because they yeah, were worried about right. people like thinking that uh, Daniel Craig wasn't masculine enough. And so they're like, well, we'll show you. Look at this guy. Look at how muscular he is. And he's going to come out of the water. Uh, but it also sexualizes <laughs> him in a different way that's like different from previous James Bond films because normally James Bond is like, this is from what I understand of reading the scholarly stuff, but normally James Bond has his clothes on and he's the one that controls the situation and he he is gaining access to the women's sexuality. But in this case, we see uh, James Bond through a sexual gaze that is very different. Uh, so I don't know. That's, it's, it's interesting, but yeah, definitely on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say for cleanup or should we wrap this wrap this bad boy up? That's all I've got. All right. So thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for kicking off our Netflix season with us. Uh, Next week, we are going to be back with one that I have been waiting for for a long time. We are going to watch the 2017 film of Stephen King's monster novel, It. And I have seen this movie. I adore this movie. But Matt, I believe you have not seen this movie. I have not seen this movie. And I honestly have no sense whether you will like it, love it, hate it. It's going to be a fun one. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, I'm I'm excited to watch it, but I also don't I don't have a good sense of how I'll feel about it. I you've been wanting me to watch it for a while and so it's been on my list of things like i should get to this but then once we put together the podcast this is one that we've been trying to get on like from the very first episode we've been trying to figure out when we could get this one on um well we had it scheduled and then it got taken off of um, yes whatever stream maybe hbo so yeah so i'm excited to watch it i've been saving watching it specifically so we could discuss it Uh, So, yeah, if you want to reach out to us, give us a little bit of feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us something longer than 140 characters, you can shoot us an email at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. As always, we do want to thank David Stewart, a.k.a. Asturial, for being our tireless editor as well as our beta listener and you know also just our really good friend who we talk to most days <laughs> i sure. guess i haven't said that on the podcast before but yeah we we love him he is yes, great we love you david do you have a closing question for us i do so one of the hallmarks of uh, james bond is uh with these these cars you always get the bond car with the with the gadgets mm-hmm. in them yeah. uh all kinds of gadgets that have been in bond cars you've gotten like knife hubcaps and car phones and lasers and rocket propulsions apparently there was once a printer and a fax machine in the in the bond car uh, mm, yeah, so high tech. You got an invisibility cloak at one time. The car can turn invisible. Yep, yeah, in the ice palace. Uh, and forget. in this film, we get a defibrillator. So that's uh, pretty neat. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> not so much on the gadgets for this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's one of the more handy one out of these to have around. But uh, my question is, if you could add a gadget to a to a Bond car, like or to your car, I should say, if you were going to add mm. some kind of Bond gadget to your car, what would you want to add to your car? What would I want to add to my car? Yeah, I think I'd want some sort of. 
it's not it's not going to be very useful for spies but some sort of like sports interface it's very annoying that it is like if i want to listen to sports i have to queue it up when i like before i get into the car and i have to do it through my phone and connect to the app and have the app and i i wish that there i had integration with like espn or whatever whatever the sports thing was and that it's going to like play me the radio feed when I'm driving but like let's say the game gets down to it and I want to pull off and watch the last two minutes it's going to know like I put my car in park and it's just going to flip the game on the video feed nice yeah I dig it that sounds great. May and you know what? It may as well not do it in in like a center console. It's gonna do it. It's gonna project it onto the windshield. Of course, it's a it's a bond car. Why would yeah. it do anything else? That's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. No. What about you? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's a little bit hard to figure out exactly what I would want it to do. But whew, I think uh, after the past few weeks of uh, having to drive over, pick my son up, and sometimes having to wait. For quite a while and just being really tired i want to have a nice just uh not i don't want my car to just recline i want that car mm. i want that chair to turn into a full-on bed right a bed convertible a bed convertible yeah. yes i want to be able to go uh have a blanket and a pillow be able to roll up and just take a little nap in my car boom yeah oh that's nice that's probably doable honestly that's much more doable than mine possibly i don't know it's a you got a it's it's, cars don't have a lot of space to figure out but uh that's what i would want uh it's sort of like can we figure out geometry and physics or can we figure out all of these various sports licenses and (laughs) uh yeah i think geometry and physics is going to be easier to break (laughs) easy yeah for sure (laughs) that is a very good point all right that'll do it for us this week and we'll be back next week with some horror all right, we'll see y'all. Horror we go. Pronounce that one carefully. Yeah, that's, right. a, that's a tricky one. Bye. Bye. All right.